Welcome to Fieldscape, a podcast exploring the interaction between society and the environment. In recent years in the United Kingdom, there's been a transformation in the dynamics and running of many living rooms. These strongholds of comfort and privacy have undergone a change that, perhaps more than evolution, could be considered a revival. It's a trend that looks back towards the days before the television set claimed its position as the centrepiece of the lounge and as the focus of the family gaze during the period of relaxation that marks the end of the day, to a time when the flicker, crackle and warmth of flames formed a sensory blanket as winter went about its business outside. Yes, much anecdotal and statistical evidence points to the fact that wood fires have returned to many of our homes. The government's 2016 Domestic Wood Use Survey shows that the amount of wood being burnt in British homes doubled between 2008 and 2013, and they are now estimated to be around 2.5 million households in the UK using wood fires as their primary or secondary source of heating. A large factor in this mass breaking open of sealed fireplaces and sweeping of forgotten chimneys is the great rise of the wood-burning stove. These steel or cast-iron, glass-fronted boxes have been appearing in ever-growing numbers. The Domestic Wood Survey states that almost half of households burning wood do so using a wood burner, and the Stove Industry Alliance, the organisation that represents manufacturers and distributors of stove, estimates that around 175,000 of these devices are being purchased each year at present. So, the stove market and the wood burning market in general is booming, and well, as would be expected, all those logs, all that fire and all that smoke is inevitably producing impacts, arguably both positive and negative. In this episode, we'll be looking at what exactly these effects have been on our homes, our finances, our air and the climate. And we will ask, what role should we give to wood-burning stoves for the heating of our homes in the future? So what are we going to do now? So the rope's going to go down, uncoil the liner, liner's going to go down, following the rope, John, John will pull, and I'll feed it up from the roof by that precarious ladder, which you're going to be holding the bottom of. Brilliant. Hopefully. <laughs> I hope you trust in me. Early one Wednesday morning this January, I found myself stood on a tiled roof in Brighton, holding a ladder from Max Pugh, a registered stove installer based in the city, as he leaned over a chimney, preparing it for the installation of a new stove. What are you doing now, Max? Putting a pot on. What does that involve? Jubilee clips. Gotcha. Central Brighton went about its morning errands below, and the cold coastal air quickly froze my hands around the rungs of the ladder. Max assured me, however, that the elements were not the only hazard in this workplace. It's in the summer because it's their um, breeding season. Breeding season, nesting season, whatever it is. And they're protected. They are a nightmare. So if I go up on a roof, let's say I was on a roof and the next door neighbours had a... um, had a nest, the seagulls would st- start squawking and just lose their minds and start dive-bombing me and then the- all the seagulls in the area would come and do the same thing. And it's dangerous, you know, I can't keep my eye on the seagulls in the sky while looking at my feet on the roof, like it's hard. And sometimes you just have to wait it out and other times if it's really that bad you can't work until, because you can't disturb a nest, it's illegal. So you can't work until they're gone. So probably only about three or four times a year. Well, maybe less than that it happens. Probably like once or twice, maybe. Yeah. So as being a, a stove installer in a coastal town like Brighton, a hazardous job? Yeah, all, all year round. In the winter it's cold and wet and icy, and in the summer the seagulls. Back on the ground, I had the opportunity to sit down with Max 
and ask him about the factors driving the popularity of wood-burning stoves. I think mostly it's aesthetics. We get a lot of people that show us pictures of stoves that they've seen online and they say, I want my fireplace to look like this and it'll have a particular surround or like a wooden mantle and the stove that they like. The continued rise of the wood burner has very much coincided with the popularity of the Danish concept of hugge in the last few years. This term, although reported to be rather impossible to translate and to pronounce, seems to be used to describe activities that place emphasis on comfort and coziness to promote well-being. Think of the abundant photographs on Instagram and in magazines of hot chocolate drinkers clad in thick socks settled in armchairs before the glow of a wood-burning stove. These images do appear to capture an enormous part of the appeal of a wood burner. They are undoubtedly extremely cosy. You usually get people either going for things like that aesthetically or it's because they are interested in the environment and they're replacing an open fire. A lot of people tend to take issue with burning coal. They see it as dirty, whereas they see burning wood as, I guess, cleaner, probably is the best way to put it. Some people do talk a lot about efficiency and people seem definitely drawn to the idea of a, a really efficient stove. This added efficiency is a real selling point of wood burners. The efficiency being the amount of potential heat from the fuel that actually ends up heating the room. The newest stoves are reported to run at 80% efficiency, with that of older models at 65%. These are very high numbers when compared to the mere 30% efficiency of an open fireplace. This means that less wood is needed to heat a room using a stove, and as such, much less carbon is released. An even better piece of news for users' carbon footprints is that wood itself as an energy source is often cited as being carbon neutral. While we'll be delving further into this claim a bit later on, the basic argument is that if for every tree chopped down for the purposes of wood burning a new one is planted, then the quantity of carbon released by burning the wood will eventually be reabsorbed by the new tree, a cycle equating to carbon neutrality. The higher efficiency of stoves and the smaller quantity of fuel used also lead to lower running costs. From a financial perspective, this means that stoves can also be compared favourably to gas or oil boilers, though it would be wise not to forget the £1,500 to £2,000 that is likely to be paid out to buy a stove and have it installed. Therefore, for those conscious of their long-term spending on heating, a wood burner is an attractive option. So then, all seems very bright for wood burners. They are aesthetically and sensorially pleasant devices that are good for the planet and also good for consumers' finances. Well, it may not be quite that simple. The reported benefits of wood burners have not freed them from controversy on other fronts. In recent months, for example, it has not been uncommon to see headlines of the following nature. Fire and fury. Wood burners spark debate. The Financial Times. Is your wood stove choking you? How indoor fires are suffocating cities. The Guardian. Are wood burners really bad for our health? Invisible pollution inside our homes. The Times. Yes, it seems that behind the images of wood burning couples snuggled up drinking hot chocolate, there is now a dark cloud looming over the chimney. The dark cloud of air pollution. The issue of air pollution in relation to wood burners is centred on a substance, or rather a large group of substances, called particulate matter. PM for short. Particulate matter is a term used to describe all the minuscule particles in the air that aren't gases. It's defined as the sum of all particles under 10 micrometers. That's five times smaller than the diameter of a human hair. These particles can be naturally occurring, such as pollen or sea spray, or human-made, like industrial dust, soot from exhaust fumes, or the particles and smoke from domestic fires. PM is divided into several subgroups of particles of different sizes. The group that is most mentioned in relation to the smoke produced by domestic burning is particulate matter 2.5, PM 2.5. These are particles measuring less than 2.5 micrometers. Going back to that same comparison, that's 40 times smaller than the diameter of a human hair. PM 2.5 represents a major health risk to those exposed to it. The particles are small enough to enter into the lungs and the blood and can subsequently be transported around the body and end up lodged in vital areas. PM2.5 pollution has been linked to an increased risk of heart attack, strokes, asthma, cancer, and diseases such as Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. To find out more about the role of domestic wood burning in the production of PM2.5, I spoke to Cor Press Christensen, 
and environmental engineer who is senior advisor on air quality for the Danish Ecological Council and member of Clean Heats, an EU-funded project aiming to raise awareness of air pollution related to domestic wood burning. My name is Kor Pras Christensen. Of course, impossible to pronounce in English. Uh, you could say Mr. Press Christensen. There's been a surprising amount of difficult Danish pronunciation today. Well, in the European Union, I mean, we have 400,000 Europeans dying every year due to particulate matter. I mean, wood burning is the key contributor. Even in in UK, you have more particulate matter coming from the wood stoves than you have from all the road traffic. In the UK, domestic wood burning is estimated by the Department for Environmental, Food and Rural Affairs, DEFRA, to be responsible for 34% of PM2.5 emissions. That's higher than the combined total contribution of industrial combustion, to which 16% is attributed, and road transport, which is at 12%. DEFRA figures show that open fires are the worst offenders, producing 2,950 grams per megawatt hour of PM2.5. However, many stoves do not do much better, with recorded emissions of 2,660 grams per megawatt hour. These levels seem especially high when compared to oil and gas boilers, which produce just 16 grams per megawatt hour and 0.72 grams per megawatt hour, respectively. There is now a move from the UK government and the stove industry towards stoves that produce much less PM2.5. We shall get much further into that briefly. Regards to the death toll mentioned by Core, just to put that in context, the European Environment Agency attributed 400,000 premature deaths to PM2.5 exposure in 2012. In comparison, there was a much lower figure of 75,000 premature deaths linked to nitrogen oxides, the group of air pollutants that are most commonly linked to road traffic. In the United Kingdom, those figures were at 37,800 for PM2.5, compared to 14,100 for nitrogen oxides. The cost to national health systems as a result of PM2.5 pollution is, of course, astronomical. Emissions from open fires and wood burners are shown by research from the Danish Ecological Council to dramatically increase PM levels in the area surrounding the building in which the wood is being burnt, and PM has been found to be highly harmful even in low concentrations over both short and long-term periods of exposure. Research done by the University of Bath in 2016 showed that 90% of the UK population live in areas with levels of PM2.5 exceeding the limit set by the World Health Organization of 10 micrograms per meter cubed. It's not just those outside that are exposed to this risk. And we see extreme high indoor air pollution in many houses with wood stoves. Much higher than we see at the streets in the central London where I measured air pollution some years ago. And these The health effects of these indoor air pollution levels have never been taken into account. At present, there are no regulations against using open fires and wood burners in the UK, except in designated smoke control areas. These are zones, such as inner cities, in which no open fires and only specially certified DEFRA-exempt stoves with much lower emissions can be employed. DEFRA-exempt stoves are recorded as producing 335 grams per megawatt hour of PM2.5, much lower than the 2,660 grams per megawatt hour of a more traditional model. However, these regulations have proved to be notoriously difficult to enforce. They are often not known of or ignored by those burning wood domestically. This difficulty with enforcement has been such an issue that in 2017, Sadiq Khan, Mayor of London, spoke out against local authorities' lack of powers to take action on pollution linked to domestic burning. I spoke to Dennis Milligan from the Stove Industry Alliance, Again, that's the organisation representing stove manufacturers and distributors, and asked about this event. I asked him what authorities in the stove industry saw as the solution to particulate matter pollution, both in smoke control areas and in the UK in general. The the mayor of London made a statement that he uh, wanted greater powers to control wood burning within the city. The legislation in relation to to, to emissions of smoke are in the hands of DEFRA. So he was calling on DEFRA to give him more powers. And one of the things he, he put out there was a possibility of, you know, restricting the, the burning of wood, particularly in areas of London where, um, say, they were close to schools. And that was mis, misreported as him saying he wanted to ban stoves. So the, so the day that the uh, publicity went out, his office rang me and said, Look, sorry, we, did, we didn't say we wanted to ban stoves. Could you come and talk to us? And that started the dialogue with the mayor's office. 
which actually led to the to to the mirror uh, sponsoring adverts in the evening standard really encouraging people to move away from open fires which is the worst way to burn wood to using eagle design ready stoves and also for using the correct dryness of wood because the dryness of the wood has an impact on the emissions that are produced. You'll see this clearly in the DEFRA strategy is really what DEFRA are approaching and what the Lord Mayor is supporting is the idea of burning the right fuel on the most, the most appropriate appliance, which is an equal design ready stove. So both authorities and the stove industry see the solution to this issue in built up areas such as London as being proper respect for restrictions on open fires and the promotion of the least polluting stoves and fuels, a drive to replace the most polluting form of wood burning with a less polluting one. This strategy will soon not be restricted only to designated smoke controlled areas. A new clean air strategy published by DEFRA on the 14th of January of this year includes plans to impose stricter regulations on domestic wood burning stoves across the country. Whilst open fires will not be banned, beginning in 2022, only stoves meeting the requirements of the European Union's new eco-design regulations will be allowed to be sold in the UK. According to DEFRA, these new stoves have higher efficiency and a PM 2.5 limit of 335 grams per megawatt hour, far lower than the previously mentioned 2,660 grams per megawatt hour of older stoves. Dennis referenced eco-design ready stoves at the end of that last segment. This is a labelling initiative currently being run by the Stove Industry Alliance that identifies stoves complying with eco-design regulations ahead of these regulations being brought into force in 2022. Basically, I think DEFRA have come to the understanding that, that not all wood burning is the same. So basically, the, the stoves that we're now advocating, which are eco-design ready, effectively control the burn so that uh, the amount of emissions that are reduced are, are greatly reduced. So the emission reduction from an, an, an eco-design ready stove compared to an open fire would be 90%. So you're dropping the emissions by 90 percent and the, the, the main way of achieving that is we're actually introducing uh, more combustion air higher up in the firebox so uh the the little bits of wood that are in the smoke are reignited so you you have you have you have more control than you have you have increased burning and that means that the actual amount of uh, particulate matter that goes up the chimney is, is actually reduced Additionally, the clean air strategy outlines plans to give more power to local authorities to deal with air pollution, as well as unveiling plans to regulate the sale of fuel for burning so that only the least polluting wood fuel is available. This is wood that has been dried down to a moisture content lower than 20%, significantly improving performance and decreasing emissions. In relation to PM2.5, the targets set out by the strategy are to reduce emissions by 30% by 2020 and by 46% by 2030. The government also aims to half the number of people in the UK living in zones with PM 2.5 levels above those recommended by the World Health Organization, which, as mentioned, was at 90% in 2016. These seem like very positive developments. Eco-designed stoves will produce 90% less PM 2.5 than older ones. There's no doubt that they are a better combustion method than open fires or older stoves. But I was curious to know whether this reduction was sufficient. The 335 grams per megawatt hour of PM2.5 coming from eco-design stoves is still far higher than the 16 grams per megawatt hour of an oil boiler or the 0.72 grams per megawatt hour of one employing gas. Given that PM2.5 is reported to cause considerable health damages even at low levels, I wanted to know what risks the new eco-design stoves presented. Is the push by government and the stove industry to replace the most polluting forms of burning wood with less contaminating practices enough? Or should we be asking harder questions about domestic wood burning? To start to tackle this issue, I asked Core Press Christensen if the goals that the UK has established in relation to the World Health Organization limits on PM 2.5 are sufficient. No, no, they are they are they are political limit values. Um, we have we have two types of limit values. We have scientific limit values and we have political limit values. Scientific limit values, they are put by uh, from toxicological knowledge. And there we say, okay, we accept that when the limit values are met, then one out of a million will die over a lifetime. But when we talk uh, other limit values like the PM limit values, we go uh, a factor thousand higher. We accept that one out of thousand people can actually die. And there's no scientific explanation for that. 
The only explanation is that the politicians have put the limit values. So we looked upon what if we actually used particle limit values in the same way as we set limit values for chemicals in food and drinking water and soil. And they should be about a factor 1,000 lower, a factor 1,000. So, so you need to go down to 0.025 micrograms per cubic meter. However, there are natural sources for particulate matter. So you will never be able to go that low. So you should try to go down to 2.5 micrograms. Uh, I know the WHO limit value is 10 micrograms, but it is clearly stated that even fulfilling this limit value, you will have huge health effects in the population. So they clearly say that the 10 micrograms per cubic meter is not a safe level in any way. But it is a level, they say, within reasonable costs, it should be achievable. And of course, that should be the first step. But in the really long run, we should try to go much lower. In that case, new proposed government targets for reducing PM2.5, whilst being an improvement on current policy, should not be considered as levels that are truly safe for public health. Given this, I asked Core what should be made of the new clean air strategy and eco-design regulations for stoves, and how effectively they will tackle the problem of particulate matter pollution. It's an improvement, of course. It's much better than the stoves, many of the stoves that are on the market today. So it's definitely an improvement. And it will reduce the number of premature deaths caused by air pollution from wood stoves. But it will go extremely slow because it only goes for new stoves. And stoves are made of iron. Iron lasts forever. A wood stove have a lifetime of at least 40 years. So the Eco-Design Directive will only cover new stoves, so it will take a long time to have all the stoves replaced. So, a major issue is the predicted slow replacement rate of the hundreds of thousands of long-lasting, non-Eco-Design stoves that are already installed in people's homes in the UK. No incentivization is provided by the government to encourage this switch. Given that many old stoves are almost as polluting as open fireplaces, this will surely limit the impact that the strategy is able to have in terms of reducing particulate matter pollution. Beyond this slow conversion rate, Core points to more intrinsic problems with eco-designed stoves. Of course, eco-designed stoves are better than the average stoves on the market. No doubt about that. However, they do not solve the problem. If we compare the emission limits in the eco-design directive to the emission limits in the euronorms covering trucks, then uh, stove fulfilling the strictest eco-design requirements will be allowed to emit as much air pollution as uh, 30 to 40 trucks. Old trucks without particulate filter. If we compare it to new trucks with particulate filters, then the new eco-designed stoves, they are allowed to pollute as much as three to 4,000 times as much as new trucks. So to call eco-designed is very tricky because people believe when they are eco-designed, then they are probably eco-friendly. I mean, if you take a new eco-designed stove and a new truck, and the eco-design stove pollutes three to 4,000 times as much as the new truck. I mean, it should be the new truck that is eco-friendly. Taking this state of affairs into consideration, how do we account for the promotion of these devices by DEFRA's new clean air strategy, by political figures such as the Mayor of London and by the stove industry? I, I think wood burning is, is an important part of the, of the renewable mix. Dennis from the Stove Industry Alliance. And that's been shown right across Europe, and it's been shown by the fact that with uh, here in the UK, that the majority of the of the uh, carbon savings have come through biomass rather than wind or solar. If you go and look at the carbon factors that are official official figures in the government's you know uh, approved software to measure the energy efficiency of a house, the 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 carbon amount, the amount of carbon from wood burning is like drastically lower than it is for, for oil or gas. 
I think it's it's only right and it's important that we we then look at the emissions that they produce to make sure that they're curtailed. And I think that's that's what we're about doing. So rather than throwing the baby out of the bathwater, what we're trying to do is make sure that you know we we reduce the emissions down as as much as possible. And uh, I think that's that's what that's the line that the effort have taken. We can draw the conclusion that the new plan for domestic wood stoves is based on a trade-off. We accept reduced but still dangerous levels of PM two point five in order to enjoy the large carbon savings inherent to wood fuel. I gave a lecture last week in Birmingham and, and the line I always start with on this is there's no such thing as a free lunch. If you want energy, you pay for it. This is Patricia Thornley, director of the European Bioenergy Research Institute at Aston University and leader of the UK Supergen Bioenergy Hub. You pay for it environmentally, you pay for it economically, and you pay for it socially. It doesn't matter what form that energy is in, whether it's bio, whether it's solar, whether it's anything else there are always impacts. And, you know, we can quantify those. You can choose what form your impact takes. You cannot set it to zero. It will always be there. At first glance, this particular trade-off related to eco-design stoves seems appealing as a potential solution to an underlying problem in the domestic energy sector. The UK domestic heating sector has seemed unable to move away from fossil fuel dependency. 84% of energy consumed in domestic buildings comes from fossil fuels at present. Whilst greenhouse gas emissions have been falling in many other areas, such as the power and industrial sectors, temperature-adjusted emissions from buildings rose in 2017 for the second consecutive year. Are eco-designed stoves a solution to this addiction to fossil fuels? And if they are, how do we weigh up the potential climate benefits with the costs of air pollution? To begin to get a clearer picture of this issue, let's have a look at the relation between domestic wood burning and climate change. As Dennis Milligan from the Stove Industry Alliance pointed out a bit earlier, the government's carbon factors for wood as an energy source are extremely low. Carbon factors are the figures used to estimate the total climate impact of an activity when all released greenhouse agents are taken into account. These government figures are based on a model that assumes that the carbon released when wood is burnt will in turn be reabsorbed by trees grown to replace the original. This equates to effective carbon neutrality and has allowed for the assertion of domestic wood burning's green credentials. It has been argued, however, that this claim of across-the-board climate neutrality for wood fuel is very simplified and ignores a more complex picture of wood's climate impact. When we look at bioenergy, what we're looking at is an ongoing exchange of carbon dioxide between atmosphere um, and the ecosphere. And when you do that, um, you take carbon dioxide in one year, you give it back the next. And therefore, if you look at the net carbon balance, what you actually see is a sort of superposition, a little sawtooth edge on top of this big, you know, sort of carbon exchange that exists because of the climate change issue. Now, that that is the case if we're looking at a one-year time scale. And if we look at a three-year time scale, then the sawtooth gets a little bit bigger. If we look at longer time scales, so let's think of things like um, short rotation forestry of the order of 10 years or so, we, we can still be fairly relaxed about this because we know that what we are soaking up from the atmosphere in the next 10 years is um, reducing concentrations there. And then that's getting emitted again. So as long as you stagger things and have it on a reasonable time scale, it's not too big a problem. The reason we have an issue with the stuff in the longer term, and I'm thinking here of forests which are maybe on 80 to 100 year rotations, is that we frankly left it too late in terms of how we're addressing climate change to be able to really reliably say that it doesn't matter within a 50-year time scale if we release our carbonite in one go. The issue that we have is that we only have a certain amount of headroom left in terms of our carbon budget and all the policy trajectories that we're aiming for to avoid what we call dangerous climate change give us quite a restricted profile through to 2020, 2030, 2050. And it then becomes quite important to look and say, actually, if I put too much carbonite in 2020, I may then need to do more than I thought I did in 2030 and 2040. So it's not about the long-term concentration impact and the net warming. It's about the actual timing 
of when the carbon is sequestered from the atmosphere and when it's re-released again. And the fact that when you're dealing with a system where the difference between the sequestration time and the release time is, you know, on a par with what your overall target is of about 30 years, then you just need to be much, much, much more careful about what you're doing and actually look year on year at what the balance actually is. It can contribute to carbon reductions, but you need to be incredibly careful about how you manage your forest and you need to think about what's happening in the rest of the system at the same time to avoid overshooting on carbon budgets at critical points in time. So the real benefit that Woodfield can produce for combating climate change is largely dependent on the timescale of the management of the particular woodland it is taken from. Rotation systems must be within the timeframes of current climate goals. The DEFRA Clean Air Strategy mentions a scheme called Ready to Burn, which it supports in conjunction with the Stove Industry Alliance. Ready to Burn is a labelling initiative that allows consumers to identify suppliers providing wood fuel that's considered appropriate for burning. The main requisite for this fuel is for it to be dried to lower than 20% moisture content, as wood with lower moisture content burns much more cleanly. Whilst ensuring that wood is sourced from managed forests, it does not mention the rotation time of these forests. Thus, there is no guarantee that wood on sale will be from woodlands run on a timescale favouring the fulfilment of international climate goals. Additionally, the 2016 Domestic Wood Use Survey shows that only about a third of wood burnt domestically in the UK is bought from suppliers. The rest is gifted, sourced from farmers and landowners, or gathered. It's extremely hard to guarantee that wood from these uncontrolled origins is taken from woodlands managed within a time frame useful for current climate goals. In addition to these concerns regarding the rotation period of woodlands, the UK Committee on Climate Change published a report in November 2018 that called on government to reassess carbon factors that assume wood is an inherently low carbon energy source. The report points to the large variance in emissions that can be caused by an array of factors, such as the type of trees grown, where they are grown, and how the wood is processed. This is echoed by a 2017 report from Chatham House, which also calls for revisions of carbon factors. It states, The use of woody biomass for energy cannot be considered to be automatically carbon neutral under all circumstances, though most policy frameworks treat it as though it is. In reality, carbon dioxide and methane will be emitted from the combustion of woody biomass, generally at higher levels than from the fossil fuels it replaces, and from its supply chain of harvesting, collecting, processing and transport. Therefore, the climate credentials of domestic wood burning are far from guaranteed, Whilst wood may reduce carbon emissions if taken from effectively managed woodlands, it cannot be assumed that this is always the case. The figures held by government, which are used to promote stoves, do not take into account and do not identify the great variations that different practices can have on climate emissions. There's even more to be said on the climate impact of domestic wood burning. It's time to get familiar with a substance called black carbon. So, so when you burn anything um, that has carbon in it, you get emissions. Um, and generally what you're doing is you're taking the carbon and you're turning it into carbon dioxide, mostly a little bit of carbon dioxide. You may get a few other things in there. And one of the other things that you may get are particles. The particles can contain the ash material, um, which is not combustible, but they can also contain bits of the unburnt carbon um, that you have from your um, wood at the start. So, you know, it, it's an indicator of poor combustion and you end up with black carbon particles. A paper published in 2013 titled Bounding the Role of Black Carbon in the Climate System, a Scientific Assessment, which is authored by 29 scientists from institutions around the world, asserts that black carbon is the second most important human emission after carbon dioxide in terms of its contribution to climate change. First of all, when it's in the atmosphere, the lower atmosphere, then black uh, particles, they absorb uh, solar radiation much better than the surface. Black carbon absorbs like 99% of the sunlight. So when it's in the atmosphere, a much higher share of the sunlight is uh, absorbed in the atmosphere and thereby the atmosphere is heated. Another major effect is that you have a very high deposition of black carbon in the Arctic areas. 
much of the air pollution we emit in, in Europe, North America, and China, Asia. It uh, goes into the atmosphere and then the air is cooled in the Arctic and then it is deposited there. So a huge area of ice in the Arctic being gray instead of white. And when you have white ice, they have a very high albedo value. It, it reflects almost all sun. But when it's just a little bit gray or dark due to black carbon, it is so absorbs a much higher percentage of the sunlight, causing to warming, and thereby you have a melting of the ice. So these are the two, two ways. One in, in the atmosphere, acting more or less like, like uh, climate gases, and one is after it has been deposited. The IPPC have uh, clear uh, GWP values for black carbon. On a 100-year perspective, it is 900 times as, a, as powerful as CO2 per kilogram. And on a 20-year perspective, it is 3,200 times as powerful as CO2 per kilogram emitted. So it's a very powerful climate pollutant. But the most fantastic thing about black carbon is the following. CO2 lives for, for, for centuries in the atmosphere, but black carbon only lives two to three weeks, meaning that if we limit the black carbon emission, we get a climate benefit here and now. And due to the extreme high connected health benefits of reducing black carbon, it's very cost efficient to, to migrate climate change that way. Edward Mitchell and co-authors published an article in 2016 exploring black carbon emissions from pre-eco-designed wood-burning stoves and the resultant impact on the climate. In this study, they show that these black carbon emissions led stoves to strongly contribute to global warming, even if wood was assumed to not produce CO2. Just a quick aside, as with PM2.5, emissions of black carbon vary enormously depending on the device used. Burning wood fuel in devices with high combustion efficiency and filtration, such as a large biomass boiler or a power plant, will produce tiny amounts of PM2.5 and black carbon when compared to most stoves. Whilst the lower levels of PM2.5 produced by eco-design stoves also means that lower quantities of black carbon are released by these new appliances, neither the new UK Clean Air Strategy nor the EU Eco-Design Directive include specific emission reduction targets for black carbon. Nor is black carbon taken into account in relation to the government's carbon factors for wood. Therefore, there is no guarantee that new stoves effectively reduce levels of this potentially strong climate change agent. In the European Union, we report our, uh, how can we say, our climate gases. So CO2, methane, uh, denitrogen oxide and the F gases. These are the only climate components we report to the UN system. Even though the IPPC have fully recognized black carbon as a key contributor to global warming, but still the EU only report gases. And since black carbon is a particle contributing to global warming, they don't report it. And since we don't report it, the politicians don't see it. Many countries don't have a good inventory on their black carbon emission sources or their total black carbon emission, even though EASA makes these uh, inventories for all European countries for air quality purposes, because black carbon is very health damaging. But in the climate policy, it is invisible. This lack of direct action to tackle black carbon emissions may be related to certain doubts regarding the substance from the scientific community. In general, black carbon is not separated out as a separate thing to regulate because it's so difficult to measure. That, that, that's a simple version. You know, if you're going to regulate it, there's only point if you can measure it. I, I would love to see someone measure it properly. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd quite like to see um, accurate measurements of um, the black carbon level from a range of different um, biomass combustion devices. I think that would be a really useful piece of information. Until that is done, to be honest, we don't really know how big a problem it is. Despite these doubts, an increasing number of international bodies have identified black carbon as an extreme danger and have called for it to be fully recognised in policy. For example, the United Nations Environment Programme has set out a plan of international recommendations to tackle black carbon. 
and the Nordic Council of Ministers Secretariat has called for it to be addressed by the EU Eco Design Directive. It's quite strange because when we talk to GG Climate, the climate unit of the European Commission, they know this. And then we say to them, well, you, you are the climate uh, part of the European Commission. Why don't you highlight that member states need to report the black carbon as a climate pollutant? And actually, they are working on this. But, <laughs> and this is the really crazy part, no member states want to do it because many of them have promoted wood burning as the carbon climate uh, neutral uh, heat source. Perhaps then, these recommendations will soon be put into place by the EU. How the UK will act to control the danger of black carbon in a post-Brexit scenario is another question that is open to debate. Okay, so to sum up this look at the relationship between stoves and climate change. The climate credentials of stoves and of domestic wood burning more widely are clearly not guaranteed. The carbon neutrality of wood is questionable. The rotation times of woodlands must respect international timescales related to the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, and carbon produced at other points in the production chain must also be examined. Neither of these factors are guaranteed at present for consumers looking to buy wood for domestic burning. Furthermore, the presence of black carbon makes the assertion of the climate friendliness of both old stoves and new eco-design stoves more difficult to maintain. As a consequence, the trade-off mentioned earlier, climate benefits in return for air pollution, is thrown far off kilter. If the climate benefits of stoves are built on such shaky foundations, it seems much harder to justify the dangerous levels of PM2.5 pollution produced even by new eco-design stoves. This means that the line of action recommended to consumers by authorities in the stove industry, the replacement of the worst methods of burning wood with less polluting eco-design stoves and low emission fuel, is hard to support in many cases. The benefits seem to be under extreme pressure from the costs. Given these factors, how should domestic burning be managed? In, in terms of where would it make sense in the UK to put wood stoves, answer rural areas. It, you know, in an area where the air quality is very good and we are working with stuff that is supplied locally, then th there are benefits associated with that. If you're talking about, you know, sort of deliberately shipping wood into central London in order to burn it and add to the levels of pollution next to areas that are already, you know, have very poor air quality, that doesn't sound to me like a terribly good idea. I would rather use the wood in the rural areas than in the urban ones. It appears that a solution to bad air quality in cities such as London should not be the replacement of open fires by eco-designed wood burners, as has been suggested. Rather, a move away from the domestic burning of wood in these settings would be far better. This phasing out of domestic wood burning from urban areas as a measure to reduce pollution has also been recommended by the UK Committee on Climate Change in a 2018 report titled Biomass in a Low Carbon Economy. I asked Core Press Christensen how likely the implementation of changes of this type are and what would have to be done to achieve them. It's about information level. People know that transport is emitting a lot of CO2. They know it's causing lots of air pollution. It is accepted within the mind of the population. So the, the politicians, they can say this. It's politically legal because the population know the politicians, they do this to avoid global warming, to avoid health effects. So they accept it. Of course, there'll be a lot of people disagreeing, but they accept it. The same if they restrict smoking, asbestos. But since wood burning has not yet been widely accepted as something bad, something polluting, it's not politically legal to regulate it. And that's why information is so important. So the politicians, they want to be re-elected. And the more people that have wood stoves, the less politicians will speak against wood stoves. Unless we reach a point where everybody, including the owners of the wood stoves, they realize that this is a huge challenge to the environment, to their health, their own health, and to the climate. Then it's political, legal to take action. And that takes lots of information to reach that point but that's the only way forward in democracy. As with so many things, it seems, 
Improvements in policy on domestic burning requires political will, and political will requires more awareness from the public. The proposed movement away from domestic wood burning on current stoves in urban areas would not in any way imply abandoning biomass energy. In fact, energy from biomass could well form an integral part of our future energy system, as recommended by the Council on Climate Change. It has also been suggested that wood burning on stoves could indeed form part of a low-carbon heating solution if technology were used to further lower emissions of particulate matter. This type of technology is currently used successfully on other biomass burning devices, such as large biomass boilers, which produce more than four times less PM emissions than eco-design stoves. Wood burning stoves built to these higher standards could be a good suggestion, though depending on the context of the user, it is debatable whether this wood could be put to better use in other types of domestic devices or in other parts of the energy system, as suggested by Patricia Thornley. Power generation. The benefits of power generation from wood are that it massively reduces the carbon emissions, but also that it gives us energy security so that we are not reliant on um, the, the vulnerabilities around both price and politics associated with things like um, gas and oil coming long distances. The, the reality is that North Sea gas and oil is on a massive decline and will not be there beyond, you know, may, maybe 20 years or so. I would be looking at making use of our existing gas grid and trying to turn wood into a substitute gas. Now, the benefits of doing that are, first of all, that you've got this wonderful mechanism sitting there that you're not going to be able to use in 20 years' time to deliver this low-carbon energy vector all around the country. So you, you can get it to everywhere without having to truck it around. Secondly, well, if you take the solid fuel and at a centralised facility turn it into a gas then you do away with the problems of combustion of solid fuel because what you're distributing is a gas which can then be used at local points and gives you no more emissions than does the standard natural gas. In that case, wood fuel might be incorporated into the domestic heating sector in a much less polluting way through the production of wood gas. What other practical options are there for low-carbon heating so that we might wean ourselves off our 84% reliance on fossil fuels to heat our homes? Here in Denmark, more than 60% of the population is connected to district heating. And that means that our power plants, they have an efficiency around 95% because they produce electricity and they produce heat. And the heat is used for hot water for the district heating system. So it creates uh, heat and hot water for the houses. In UK, many power plants, they have an efficiency around 40 or 45% because they only produce electricity and all the waste heat is just released to the atmosphere. It's not used as district heating. You have some plants, but a very few. I think that is one. So district heating, where just use the waste heat you have anyway. And then in the longer run, you'll not have burning. You'll have heat pumps where you take electricity produced by windmill, solar panels, and then you use a heat pumps. If it's a small heat pump in a one family house, you get a factor tree. So the electricity is converted to heat by a factor tree. And if you're a large central heat pumps like the ones we have now in Denmark, close to the sea or, or, or deeper heat pumps, do have a factor four to five. So the electricity energy you put in comes back uh, as four to five times as much heat. So in the long run, it will be heat pumps. But in a transition period, you might use district heating like we do in Denmark. It's really cheap because it's the waste heat produced in a way. For any of these proposals for clean energy to be rolled out on a large scale would require enormous shifts in policy, a large redesign and redirecting of our vision of domestic heating and of energy production more generally. The solutions put forward, a nationwide wood gas system, district heating and heat pumps powered by electricity from renewable sources, move away from a model of lowering carbon emissions on a house-by-house -house basis dependent on the decisions of the individual inhabitants of each home. Rather, they look to achieve change en masse, bringing climate-friendly, low-pollution energy into the maximum number of homes possible.
Okay, a summary to wrap things up. We've seen that DEFRA's new clean air strategy will put much more stringent limits on dangerous particulate matter emissions from stoves under the EU's Eco-Design Directive. However, these limits are still far from being safe levels, with Eco-Design stoves still producing far more particulate matter than oil and gas boilers and also than the usual suspects of pollution road vehicles. The climate benefits of wood burning have been put forward as a form of trade-off for this pollution. The arguments we have seen related to the rotation times of woodlands, to carbon produced in other areas of the wood production system, and to black carbon emissions, make the claim of across-the-board climate benefits for wood much harder to support. As a result, domestic burning, including on eco-design stoves, does not seem to make sense in urban settings. The air pollution generated and subsequent social and economic costs cannot be reliably justified by carbon savings. The way forward then is to look for heating alternatives that are low carbon and also low polluting. Whilst the inclusion of filtration technology may make stoves more viable, we've heard recommendations for overhauls of our energy systems, for the implementation of large-scale solutions that will bring clean heat to the maximum number of British homes. It seems that the two great problems of climate change and air pollution are not best tackled through the purchase of items for individual use, such as stoves, but rather through action and campaigning to create nationwide energy systems that fundamentally lower emissions of carbon and particulate matter. I'm sure that many of us will continue using our wood burners. So be sure to do so in the way that's best for you, your neighbourhood and the environment. Use the least polluting device possible, that would be an eco-design one at present. Use fuel with lower than 20% moisture content. If you're not getting it from a ready-to-burn certified supplier, this will mean drying it yourself for two years. And make sure that you are a proficient user of your device. See the links attached to this podcast for more information. Thanks for listening to this first episode. I'm William Costa.